Okay, we're, uh, we're kicking off a new series today. Um, it's 12 weeks long, and we're really just stepping back, and we're looking at what is this thing we call Christianity. We're going to challenge some assumptions. We're going to challenge some things that, that maybe are ingrained in our hearts, but is this what God's Word spells out that Christianity is really about and what we're to be about as people who call ourselves Christians? So that's kind of what we're looking at. I encourage you over this series, this is a little bit of an overview this Sunday, but I encourage you in the coming weeks, if you would bring your Bible, I'm going to be surveying a lot of passages and working through systematically, and so I encourage you in that area. Um, It's also, though I want to speak to Christians, though I want Christians to understand this thing, we are actually writing every sermon, every teaching in a way to bring along your friends that might be far from God or your friends that don't identify as Christians. So I want to invite you. And you'll notice this week we're, we're launching kind of, kind of two different uh, services in the sense of this service requiring mask and, and making sure that comfortable environment spaced out is available, which for you, who that's more comfortable for you, likely you have some friends in your life that this is the more comfortable route. And you'll see we have some space. We can still invite others to join us and still space out. So we encourage you to do that uh, next week and throughout this series as well. Let me pray for you and we'll jump into it. Father, challenge our hearts. Lord, convict us and and open our eyes and, and maybe keep our hearts open as maybe we're challenged in this series, challenged to things we had not thought of about our Christian faith. But Lord, also challenge us with the thinking of Lord, what what is it about our Christian faith that should be so compelling that we might share with others? Lord, we don't need to corner people. We don't need to frighten people into the kingdom. I believe there's such a joy and hope and encouragement in the gospel. Remind us now and send us out through this series thinking that as we share you with others. We pray it in your son's name. Amen. Well, listen, much of what makes American Christianity so resistible to those outside our faith is probably things you and I should have been resisting all along in the first place. It seems like while many of us are working very hard to make the church world seem more interesting, far less people are actually interested. We might have been spinning our wheels a little bit. While most people, I think, outside the church, they still have a very favorable view of Jesus, they don't necessarily have a favorable view of his body, the church. And that's a problem. That's kind of like me saying, hey, I love to be around, I love you, I just don't want to be around your body, right? That would be a little bit of an insult to you and a problem. The decline of Christianity in America, I believe it underscores something that's been true for a long time, but maybe isn't as important until now because we're seeing it show up. And that is that modern mainstream mainstream Christianity actually has developed a very fatal flaw. These flaws actually make our faith very fragile and weak. In fact, it makes it very hard to even defend our faith. It actually has become a popular view of Christian culture that that so many have embedded, and it actually is grounded in some assumptions that make it kind of a fake version, at least a full version, of our faith and the power of our faith in Christ. But sadly, this actually passes for real faith 
in many evangelical churches. That's what we're looking at in this series. The version, this version of Christianity, it's very simplistic and it's easily discredited. In fact, you know, for decades, college professors have actually seen incoming Christian freshmen as very easy prey. We've all listened to, read blogs, maybe talked to, read interviews of people that have left the Christian faith, right? But we rarely ever hear of somebody who leaves the Christian faith because of anything that actually has to do with Christianity, at least not in its original form. I read a blog by a former worship leader, a song leader, who left the Christian faith after she said, I read a book proving that the Bible has contradictory verses. Apparently, she grew up believing the foundation of our, of our faith was a non-contradicting book. But it's not. More on that later if that caused you to wince a little bit. I read another thing about a renowned New Testament scholar. I had known this scholar. I had read some of his material. That he acknowledged he lost his faith and embraced atheism because of suffering in the world. But our foundation of our faith is not a world without pain and suffering. Pain and suffering don't disprove the existence of God. They just disprove the existence of a God who doesn't allow pain and suffering. But whose God is that? It's not ours. Our God promised it. People leave churches because they've had a really bad experience or didn't like something at the church. Look, me too. So what? Physics doesn't undermine our faith. Neither does natural selection. Unverifiable Old Testament miracles don't cause our faith to come crumbling down. If anything I said at the beginning in these words caused you to wince a little bit and kind of tense up, I am so glad that you're here listening to this because I want to encourage you, keep listening over the next few weeks, all 12, and you're going to be introduced to what I believe the Gospels teach us about a fuller, a better version of our faith that's been there all along. So let's talk about the way forward. It's not complicated. It's not original with me. It's right there. It's hidden sometimes in plain sight in the Gospels and in the epistles of Paul. That's the things we'll be working through. We know it works because, well, it already worked. We already saw it work in the first, second, and third century. Once upon a time, members of this growing religious group called the Way, they weren't called Christians then, against all odds, they captured the attention and ultimately the following of the full pagan world of, at the time and certainly of the Roman Empire. So perhaps we need to hit pause on much of what we're doing in the contemporary church culture today, many of which, not all of it, but many of which doesn't really work anyway. And we need to take notes from the men and women who are credited with turning their world upside down in the first century. Here's the question. What did the first century Christians know that we don't? What made their faith so incredibly compelling when we read in the Gospels and we see the growth? How is it that this, like, this little religious group that started, right? I mean, it was birthed in like the armpit of the Roman Empire. How is it that against all odds, they grew? And whose leader, Jesus, was actually, if you looked at it from cultural perspective in the day, he was rejected by his own people and he was killed as a wannabe king. That was his title. 
Yet in the face of this overwhelming resistance, it survived and thrived. How did it happen? How did that? Now, we're not the first to ask these questions, right? I mean, people have been asking, probably your whole life you've read articles and thoughts uh, of this. Every Easter, right? Some popular magazines will run articles asking these type of questions. These questions, pondering these mystery. In fact, uh, uh, Karen Armstrong, she's no friend of Christianity at all. This is what she said. Yet against all odds, by the third century, Christianity had become a force to be reckoned with. We, we still don't really understand how this came about. Now, historically speaking, she's accurate. It's almost impossible to explain in human terms exactly what happened. Anthropologists and historians, maybe even skeptics, they have looked for the same questions and have come up with the same conclusion. That something happened, something happened in the first century that resulted in Christianity spreading like wildfire. There's something about the faith of these first and second century Christians that was so compelling that it was seemingly irresistible. Now, most people, you and I probably, uh, we like to seek rational explanations. We like to ask the question, why, how did this happen when these came about? So it, it seems to me fitting this unexplainable rise of the church that we would look to those who would write about who were closest to the actual events. That's what we're going to do. Peter, Luke, James, John, Paul, these folks that actually wrote about this, this Jesus movement and how it survived. And we're going to look to them and ask, what did they have to say about all this? Now, you've got to understand, squish between like the Jewish temple and the Roman empire of the day, that's the two things that are going off. This Jesus movement should not have survived, but it did. At this very moment, Christians from all over the world are actually snapping pictures in the Roman Colosseum or in Rome, right? 1,500 miles away, they're snapping pictures of the temple. I mean, let that sink in for a second. Rome has crosses and Jerusalem has Christian tourists. That didn't seem possible if you read the makeup in the Bible of the day. 2,000 years ago, the cross actually symbolized the power of the empire, but now... The cross symbolizes the power of God. How did this happen? How did it come about? And what can we learn for it? And, and, and the better question is, can this happen again, even in our contemporary church? Well, I believe it can, and that's what we're talking about in this series. So let's jump right into it, all right? Here's the overarching uh, theme. Jesus came to introduce something new. He didn't come to introduce some, a new version of something old or update an existing thing. He didn't come to make something better. Jesus came to introduce something entirely new. And people gathered by the thousands to listen, to come out, and to hear. Look, read the Gospel of Mark and circle the word crowd. There's a crowd in almost every single chapter that you would read. But it wasn't just his new message that, that resonated with people, they liked Jesus himself. Why? Because Jesus liked people who are nothing like him. And people who are nothing like him, they liked him back. That's this connection Jesus had. Jesus inviting unbelieving, even misbehaving, 
even troublesome people to follow him, and they said yes to this invitation as if it was compelling. Side note, listen, believers, as followers of Jesus, we should be known as people who like people who are nothing like us. And when we invite unbelieving or even misbehaving or even troublemaking people to follow Jesus and to hear about Jesus, they should be compelled to listen because of how we've interacted with them. Now, in the Gospels, we, we discover, like always, this always shows up, that there is a couple groups that consider Jesus a threat. Now, the self-righteous is one. We talk about that often when we talk about religious leaders, but also those who were in some form of power, political or financial figures, that their fortunes were kind of tied to this relationship of these two things, of temple and of the empire. Now, for the most part, Jesus' critics, they did not attack his character. Like, nobody went around and saying, Jesus is immoral, he's dishonest, he's cruel to people. They were most threatened by his teaching and his popularity. Religious leaders from uh, Jerusalem, they were jealous of the favor that he had actually found with the people and the crowds that were following him, the reputation he had. Like when you read the Gospels, like you can't help but agree with Pilate when we read in the crucifixion account, I find no basis for a charge against this man. Well, he found none because there was none. But Pilate knew why the temple leaders wanted Jesus crucified. It was because of his influence. It wasn't because of their law. It wasn't because of their religion. It was simply because of their own self-interest that they went after Jesus. Now, the tipping point, maybe you know this from the Gospels. Let me give you an overview. The tipping point was really not, it, it wasn't a scandal. It was a miracle. Jesus actually healed a well-known person from the dead. This, of course, is a big deal, right? Anyone is raised from the dead. This actually caused the chief priests and the Pharisees to come together and call a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Now, that probably means nothing to you and I, right? But in first century Judea, this was huge. These different religious groups agreed on almost nothing. But in Jesus, they found a common threat. They found common ground. You know the phrase, right? They found a common enemy, and it united them together. After multiple attempts, like neither of these religious groups could do anything to diminish Jesus' influence, so they decided to team together and figure out a way on how they could go at, what, how did Pilate say it? A basis for a charge against him. And so as they were gathered in the Sanhedrin, somebody blurted out what maybe all of them were thinking. It's recorded in the book of John. What are we accomplishing here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. That was their concern. Forty years later, that's exactly what happened. But more on that in the weeks to come. In the end, these religious leaders, they got together, and they created a basis for this charge. Jesus was found guilty of this, get this, bad theology and threats against the temple. You threaten the temple, that was a big deal in Jesus' day, enough to get you crucified. Pilate joined in, as you know, maybe in the story to keep the peace. 
And here was Jesus headed to the cross. No crime had been committed. It was clear that he was going to the cross because he was too popular, had too much influence. That was a problem for the religious leaders. People who were nothing like him liked him, and he liked them back. He was that compelling and hard to resist. Why? Because Jesus offered something new, something brand new. And that's what we're going to be reminded of during this series. But brand new things rarely sit with those who are tied to the old, right? That's exactly what happened. Here's the plot twist, though. The plot twist is that Jesus' crucifixion, it wasn't the end. You know this. It was more like the beginning. Jesus' death actually kicked off what was spoken about throughout his public ministry. It's what's prophesied through the prophets in the Old Testament. It's what's foreshadowed in the book of Genesis as well. What Jesus' enemy didn't know, they could not know, is that the ending of Jesus' life is not the end that they envisioned at all. It was rather a start. His death and his resurrection actually kick-started this chain of events. It would actually bring the temple to an end and the Roman Empire, we find, to an end as well. This is when the re-engaged followers of Jesus, they came together and they started to declare something about his resurrection. They understood something, that Jesus did not come simply to add another chapter on the story of Israel. Jesus had, come to introduce, had not come to just to introduce a new version of Judaism. He had come to introduce something new and to call them to this. His followers actually went out right away. They started to claim that he was the final sacrifice for sin, the fulfillment of the old, eliminating, get this, the need for the temple. That may not mean a lot to you and I, but to declare the end of the temple and the need for the temple was huge and a big problem. It wasn't just the ancient temple. 20 years or so later, we'll find Paul actually rolls into Athens to speak to the leaders in Athens, and he declares their temple, their pagan temples, as unnecessary as well. He goes so far in that speech to say, idol worship is ignorant. Those were strong words to the Roman Empire. Needless to say, you probably picked up the Jesus movement was immediately at odds between the temple and between the Roman Empire of the day. Understandably so. In fact, uh, that it survived is amazing, a testament to God. Do you remember the teaching of wineskins in the Bible? Maybe you remember this. If not, let me tell you. Uh, Jesus was new wine. New wine poured into old wineskins did not end up very well. He's saying ancient Judaism, the temple, and empire, pagan living, that's old. That's old. Jesus was new wine. Jesus was offering something different, different than both. He said he's the fulfillment of one of ancient Judaism, and he is the end to this paganism or this search through idols and other religions. And then he declares he who has eyes would recognize it and has ears would listen and would follow. Specifically, Jesus came to establish something new, a new covenant, a new movement, a new command. His new movement was going to be for everyone, everywhere. This new covenant, it wasn't going to be like the sacrificial system of the old covenant. And this new movement or this new command was going to be a new way to live out 
for all those God believers. Jesus' new was in contrast to temple and to empire. It looked different. And while Rome made the rules, the leaders of the temples, they would dig their feet in hard to carry out the rules they had. Jesus actually came against both. And so you can understand that the church survived is a testament to the power of the gospel and to the courage of those first and second century Christians. The question for you and I who are now saying we're Christians is, how did they do it? What was the foundation of what they believed about Christ and about their faith that was so compelling, that was so irresistible, that it spread like this? The first century Christians, they withstood something. They withstood this pressure to accept temple and empire along with the new. They just hunkered in and got in line and followed the new Jesus was offering. Jesus introduced, what he introduced was, was in contrast to those values and those assumptions of the old covenant, of paganism. It looked totally different what he was offering. And those closest to Jesus, they understood the contrast. They understood you can't have one with the other. In fact, even Paul, as we read Paul's writings, he gives his harshest criticism on those who attempted to integrate temple and empire with the new that Jesus came to share. Quick history. For about 300 years, the church actually fended off this kind of pressure to incorporate old covenant with the new Jesus brought. But with the conversion of Constantine the Great, you might know this, or the signing of Edict of Milan, we actually find that the church went from the persecuted minority to the empowered majority. And when you become the empowered majority, you can lose sight of things easy. Almost immediately, the resistance to the old covenant and was replaced by kind of adoption and a mixing and matching with the new Jesus came to offer. And you're going to see in this series, we can do the same thing today. I'm convinced that it is this mixing and matching of the old with the new that often makes our faith so resistible. It's this mixing and matching with the old and the new that makes our faith indefensible and, and, and even makes our faith weak. And it often drives people away from the faith altogether. Jesus warned us 2,000 years ago, pouring new wine into old wineskins in the end, it's a mess for both. But what's this old and what's this new? That's the question we want to look at. That's the focus of this series. I think it's going to be a great ride as we walk through this, especially if there was anything that caused you to kind of tense up a little bit and go, what's he talking about here? This is going to be a good series for you. So to understand this uniqueness of Jesus's movement, like we have to actually go back. We have to go back and we have to look at the old and ask, what is this old that we're contrasting with the new Jesus brought? And so to do this, it's going to be necessary for us to journey back through a familiar stretch of Bible history. So you're ready for that? Next week. We'll do it next week. All right. We'll walk through that. We're going to start and we're going to survey and walk through and ask the question, what is the old? What is temple? How did the Roman Empire come in? What did they put in? 
And then when Jesus showed, what is the new Jesus came? What is the fulfillment of the old look like? And what is the rejection of the empire look like? And then we're going to ask the question for you and I who are Christians in this day and age, what should it look like for us as well? That'll be next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just the opportunity to reset our faith. And Lord, I know for personally, Lord, I've had these times in my own theology for different issues where I've stripped away all those things that our denomination holds, that conservative Christianity holds, and I've started in your word and just started to read and look and learn so that I would learn from you. I would learn from your word and wise counsel. And Father, that is our attempt. That's what we're trying to do in this series is just start over and ask the question, what did you come to introduce? Have we embraced that and received that? Is there anything, Lord, we've gotten wrong? Is there any assumptions we've made? Is there any areas of focus we have clamped onto where you are asking us in your word to focus somewhere else? Father, you direct us and guide us during this series. Father, our prayer is this, that many, many more here or in our life of friends, families, coworkers, that we would be able to invite and see new followers of Jesus Christ form. Use this series if you would like, Lord. We pray in your son's name. Amen.